0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them.
1: This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. How dangerous are the gases that the Yellowstone volcano emits, and what can they tell scientists about the volcanic underpinnings of Yellowstone National Park? Why has Interior Secretary David Bernhardt brought a halt to efforts by the National Park Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to help grizzly bears return to the North Cascades ecosystem? And should concessionaires face less regulation and have more income-generating opportunities in national parks? We touched on those and other stories involving national parks and protected areas last week on The Traveler. You can find them at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show... Nature can be an incredibly powerful and successful teacher. Of course, students need someone to actually deliver the lessons. That's where RELCs come into play in the National Park System. Residential Environmental Learning Centers. Organizations like Nature Bridge, the Cuyahoga Valley Institute, the Yellowstone Institute, the Great Smoky Mountains Institute, and the North Cascades Institute. These nonprofit organizations use national parks as their classrooms. Earlier this month, Lynn Riddick talked with Philip Kilbridge, the president and CEO of Nature Bridge, to better understand that operation. Today she visits with Saul Weisberg, who helped found the North Cascades Institute back in 1986. After their conversation, we question why the National Park Service is making substantial funding cuts and programmatic changes to the highly regarded and successful Sea Turtle Science and Recovery Program at Padre Island National Seashore.
2: Conservation begins with education. The North Cascades Institute is one of 18 residential environmental learning centers in the U.S., offering students of all ages a comfortable space to explore the outdoors and study the natural world in the national parks. The goal is to ignite a lifelong commitment to environmental stewardship. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I had the opportunity to speak with Executive Director Saul Weisberg about the organization he helped to start. Hi, Saul. Welcome to The Traveler.
3: Thanks, it's great to be here.
2: The North Cascades Institute is a nonprofit conservation organization founded in 1986. You were a co founder. The organization provides outdoor environmental learning and leadership experiences for all age groups, focusing on the North Cascades ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest. You are headquartered in Cedro Woolley, Washington. And your organization has earned 16 four-star ratings from Charity Navigator, the highest rating possible. Tell me about your driving philosophy,
3: Saul. Well, I guess that the core is the first thing you said. We're a conservation organization that uses education and outdoor learning as our primary tool. So what we try to do is inspire environmental stewardship, Through transformative learning experiences in nature. And some of those might look like what you would expect when you talk about outdoor education, small groups of kids in the field with an instructor. But some of them also involve outdoor recreation and other outdoor activities that promote a connection with the health and wellness that you get from being out in nature. And because we also do some advocacy work, it also includes things that we think are critical, particularly now, around environmental justice, access to public lands, and pushing back against the inequities that mean that some people get to public lands and national parks much more often than others.
2: And we'll talk about that in a little bit for sure. In a typical year, and we know that this is not a typical year, your institute educates some 12,000 people and you measure in terms of learning days, of which you have had 27,600 learner days total. Guessing that's last year. Give me a sampling of the programs you offer and an idea of what some of the ones you think make the biggest impression.
3: When we started in 1986, we began with adult programs, adult field seminars, birds, butterflies, geology, watercolor painting, Short two to three day programs that would get people outside. And it became apparent really quickly in the first couple of years that if we really wanted to impact a change on the land itself, on conservation, we need to be reaching out to kids as well. So this year, 2020, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Mountain School, which is sort of our flagship school program, a program that's focused on fifth graders and brings the whole class. Out to the north cascades to our residential environmental learning center in north cascades national park So back in the beginning we had some uh, Small number of adult programs and then we had this mountain school program And it seemed like for a while almost every year or two. We were adding another program because we had all these cool ideas And the public was responding and the more people we talked to they'd say hey, what about this? What about a summer program? What about a backcountry program for high school students? What about a middle school program? What about families? And so we offer a, a really wide range of programs. I would guess that the ones that take up the most of our attention right now are the Mountain School Fifth Grade Program, a program called Youth Leadership Adventures, which is a summer high school program which involves eight and 12-day programs in the backcountry of the national park and the Baker's Nickwallamy National Forest. And that focuses on leadership, environmental awareness, environmental literacy. But all of our programs have this really strong emphasis on community. I'd say in some ways our business model is bringing people together for shared experiences outside.
2: Tell me a little bit more about the Mountain School program that you operate for fifth graders. What's on a typical agenda
3: for a day or a week there? The goals of the Mountain School Program are four big goals, really. We're trying to connect kids and their fellow classmates to the outdoors through cooperative learning. We're trying to inspire kids to continue learning and connecting with the natural world, particularly after the program experience with us, because otherwise it's just sort of a Disneyland-like you know, moment in time. We really want this to be integrated throughout the school year by the teachers. And then a, a lot of the program is just providing a deep knowledge of the North Cascades ecosystem and the scientific processes in it. So that's weather and climate, natural and cultural history, you know, adaptations of plants and animals, so that they so that kids feel at home and then and know the names of the things that they see, maybe not in their own backyard, but actually maybe in some cases they do, but but that they see the North Cascades perhaps as part of the neighborhood not just some place that's far away. And then the last goal really is supporting the schools that we work with and all the school districts in meeting the state and national education standards, particularly in science.
2: And I want to ask you a little bit more about the Youth Leadership Adventures um, program that you offer. Describe what goes on in that program. These
3: are high school kids, and they're at a point in their lives where they are just ready to think about what's next for them. And for many of them, they'll be entering their senior year. Uh, They're trying to make decisions. Do they go to college? Do they get a job? Uh, What's ahead for them? Uh, The youth leadership kids are mostly kids. More than half of them have never participated in an outdoor program before. They're almost all received scholarships to come on the program. It's, I think, almost 60% uh, people of color most of them would be first-generation college students. So the experience for them is, is what the kids tell me is it's about getting away from the cliques and confines of high school where you know, you're, you're valued and judged on by, by, so many things that they discover when they're out in the, in, the, in the woods with kids they don't know how quickly those things fade away. And so I see it as a program that really builds kids' confidence in themselves, helps create a sense of place, focuses on leadership skills, and a lot of stewardship skills. They leave knowing how to take care of themselves and of each other and of the place where they live. And I'm also curious
2: about the Mount Baker Snow School. What's that all about? And are there a lot of other programs out there that take kids into a snowy environment to
3: learn? Uh, there are other snow schools around the country. The one here was uh, originally is, is a really deep partnership with the Mount Baker Ski Area and the U.S. Forest Service, because it's on Forest Service land. We have this um, ski area in the National Forest on, up with view, wonderful views of Mount Shucks and Mount Baker. The majority of the kids who can look up and see Mount Baker or Mount Shuksan from their homes. The kids who live in Whatcom County that surround the mountain rarely, if ever, get up there. They may be limited because they can't afford skiing. They may be limited because they can't afford the, the transportation or the uh, the fees to to park at the Forest Service sites uh, to the trailheads or up on the mountain, and. We just we and the Mount Baker ski area really believe that this is an incredible opportunity to get middle school kids up to understand this landscape and particularly in winter. And so it's a a program that looks at at snow science, climate science, watershed. Looks at the watershed that Mount Baker is a major part part of, which is where all the kids get their water from, and and for many of them their power. And so it's a um, snowshoe powered exploration during the midweek when the schools come up in the school bus. And it's just been, uh, it's been growing really organically, but it's been really popular because it's, it's one, it's, it's fun. It's a great, great thing for kids to do during the, during the school week. But it also connects them to a place that many of them don't get to visit.
2: Where do you get your students? What school districts in the area? And then where do your adult students come from as well?
3: We subsidize our youth programs pretty heavily through fundraising And we focus on public schools, although not exclusively but primarily public schools and primarily in the West side counties that Make up and and surround the north Cascades. So that would be watcom skagit snohomish down into uh king king county where seattle is and then a, a smattering of schools from the east side of the mountains as well, although it's often a little bit longer drive for them. And we focus on school districts rather than individual schools. We, we started with individual schools. If we had a teacher who just wanted to do this, they came. And then the schools, particularly the Bellingham School District, pushed back on us a little bit because they said, you know, some of the schools in the district raising the funds for the, the school's portion of the cost which was already subsidized, was pretty easy. The parents could write a check. And for some of the schools, they couldn't. And so we've really focused on working with districts to educate them and help them understand that if they want kids to come, all the kids should come at, at the fifth grade level or whatever level they're choosing. And so we now, I think, have seven school districts locally where that's the case, where the school the school district itself is footing the bill for. The kids who come the school's portion of that we, we still subsidize it and our subsidies are based on the percentage of kids in the district on full and reduced lunch so school schools are fairly local. It's it's got to make it worth work for a um, You know a bus to come. Uh, we don't have kids flying in from other parts of the country However, our adult programs much wider throughout the entire Puget Sound and greater Seattle area uh, probably from Two-thirds of the states, uh, although most of our numbers are are Washington State and Pacific Northwest Um, um, A goodly number from year to year from uh, British Columbia in Canada, although of course not now with the border being closed And um, because we work in national parks and forests which are federal Even though we market primarily in the Northwest and Washington State We do see ourselves as serving a national audience because the parks belong to everyone
2: Tell me about your educators, uh, where do you find them?
3: From all over. Um, some of them we've we've grown, our, we are our homegrown because they went through our graduate program and um, we've hired them after that. Many of them come from uh, experience with groups like Student Conservation Association, working for the Park Service, working in other residential learning centers or nature centers all over the country and they find us and we are Continually reaching out to try to increase the diversity and skills of our staff Uh, Some things we've we've put in place recently is just really rethinking our hiring practices trying to really acknowledge lived experience as well as uh, higher education we provide a uh, pay bump for folks who are fluent in a second language uh, Many of our local students are from uh, Hispanic, Latinx families, and um, we need s- instructors who, who have lived experiences that the, the kids share.
2: And let's hear a little bit about your board of directors. Um, what are some of the organizations that they come from, and what type of expertise do they bring to the Institute?
3: Our board's a really broad group of committed, mostly local Um, folks with a really wide range of uh, experiences and backgrounds. One thing that I think is pretty interesting is that a a good number of them came to us first because they took a program with us, or they had a kid who took a program with us. And so they knew something about us and then reached out and said, hey, is there a way for me to get more involved? Our current board chair is a pediatrician who's done research all over, um, well, based in seattle but done research all all over northern british columbia on uh, Fetal alcohol syndrome But he's really he's one of those people who always just says, you know, it's all about the questions What are the what are the questions that we need to be asking about what we do and the impacts we have? our former board chair has worked a lot with 501 commons, which is a, a Regional group that focuses on supporting nonprofit organizations We have another board member who's the chair? Of uh, Huxley College of the Environment at Western Washington University, which was interesting, because our founding chair back in 1986 was the dean at Huxley College. At that time, John Miles, and then a, and then a wide range from you know from we have a judge, we have a uh, people in in marketing and finance and academia, people who are retired, people who are you know still actively engaged in the work for us and, and make time for us.
2: Let's talk about the current pandemic situation. It appears that all of your programs have been canceled through August and your North Cascades environmental learning center is closed, but you are offering mountain school at home. And I understand you have your youth leadership adventure staff working with older students in uh, some manner. Tell me more about these programs, the modifications you're making and how things are working out so far.
3: Strategic planning now means we're looking out you know three to four weeks ahead it It's not as strategic as we would like, and that shows itself the greatest in trying to not get too far ahead of what the science is telling us about this pandemic or lag too far behind. We're trying to take care of our staff, we're trying to take care of our students uh, and we're trying to keep keep a balance between um let's just you know mothball everything or versus let's keep everything going and and uh, Draw down our reserves too much We ran two weeks of mountain school this spring before the schools closed and We kept our staff on for two more weeks after that and then we had to furlough most of our Kind of of frontline and educational staff as those programs uh, stopped and the revenue stopped But we did transition to do Mountain School at Home, which has been a series of lessons, videos, uh, different kinds of experiences that we, we have been putting out and we're going to continue to put out. And they've gotten great response from teachers and parents who've been using them in all kinds of different ways. It's been really exciting to see kids' responses to some of the videos that are out there talking about their experience at Mountain School in the past or how excited they were to come this spring or they're really excited because they know they get to come next spring. So it's um, it's been really it's been really tricky. Uh, we have benefited because we've got some great partners, and one of those is Seattle City Light, who was involved in helping fund um, the North Cascades Environmental Learning Center as mitigation for uh, some of the Skagit dams. And they've been really helpful because they they. They believe in us and they want us to survive. And so they've been working with us on some projects that we've been doing with them to do a number of things this summer. One is to open the Skagit Information Center in the little town of New Halem in the National Park. So we are opening that, I think, next week uh, on the 26th, which will be a little small bookstore, retail store for us, but also a place to give out information about the North Cascades to all the people who are traveling. On Highway 20 the park visitor center will be closed although the park has just opened up a uh, Place for visitors to drive up to it in the parking lot there Where we're also going to have a little tent with them as well to provide information to visitors there So mountain school at home is happening. The youth leadership program has a version. that's a kind of a in local parks We're going to do four sessions this summer two in skagit county two in whatcom county With the same content area that we would use in our backcountry program but obviously very different experiences and these will be small groups of kids uh with an instructor in local parks and And that are close to home where people can get to on public or private transportation And that's going to be completely free to the kids this year And we're really excited about that. We do have to get into phase three of the washington state opening process which Is probably at least a month away so we'll be cutting that close if we can't do that or if we can't do it immediately we will there's some virtual things and and sort of information that the kids will get but uh, that's all you know it's it's all in flux right now the other thing that we're doing is um, we're developing um, our family programs because we've heard one of the groups that we've heard the loudest from when we had to cancel programs at the Learning Center was family groups that come. And those are really powerful groups because the family comes together and they come as a unit, but they immediately make friends. And when they leave, they've had this great three or four day experience with other families and they often stay in touch and they often come back to to visit with their friends uh, at the Learning Center in future years. So we're developing family kits and lessons that we can send to the families who signed up or would like to sign up. And there'll be a small fee for that, but it's going to be kits of materials that we mail them so they can go out and and do this kind of play and learning together. And then we've got a series of other, you know, just ways we want to share the North Cascades. So we've had our staff going out and just on their phones showing the changes at Diablo Lake in the springtime, talking about mushrooms or what's happening with migration or just sitting, uh, you know, next to the creek and meditating just to kind of let people know that we're still there, the nature is still there, and we're we're ready for when they come back. And the coming back, of course, is the part that we don't know yet.
2: Now, your plan beginning in 2019 was to offer every third grader in the Bellingham School District an exploration of the local forest ecosystem on Lake Whatcom, guided by your institute instructors. Tell me more about that, and do you think that program can be salvaged?
3: Well, everything can be salvaged. The challenge is we have two challenges with all of our programs, and Forest School is a good example. Uh, It's what we can offer, and then when it's and then it's what the schools decide to do, and then it's the parents and families' comfort with what that combination of offerings are, and we can only control the first one. So we have models of how we can operate all of those programs in different kinds of ways some of them some of them we just don't believe that a virtual experience is really worth the effort especially if it's if it's sort of a one-off forest school is a good example this will be our third year of forest school after after piloting it the last two years and it was canceled this spring when the schools closed and we were hoping that the schools would come back in the fall for that And the districts did not, the other districts that were interested did not want to start a new program with all the uncertainties around the fall. And Bellingham didn't want to pull that in because it was one more thing. There's no reason why forest school at Lake Whatcom can't come back next year. The question is, uh, do we bring everything back at the same time? You know, how do we balance the, the, the confusion of what a startup looks like?
2: Your revenue in 2018 included nearly $1.6 million in tuition and related revenue and $525,000 in donations, not counting in-kind contributions. How are these numbers comparing so far to 2020?
3: Our trend in the last number of years has been about 50% of the Institute's income has been from earned revenue. So the things that you mentioned, and as well as uh, revenue in from our bookstores in the park and and uh, things like that. This year, earned revenue has taken a huge hit. I mentioned earlier that our business model really is taking people outside to have shared experiences in nature. Well, COVID drove a stake into the heart of that business model. Shared experiences are what the, the one thing we really can't have right now. So our earned revenue has taken a huge hit. When we looked at our cash flow projections in March and April, we saw that, that uh, we would probably be losing about a million to a million and a half dollars this year in earned revenue. Obviously, that's something we can't make up just through fundraising. Uh, of course, we do have some savings with as you know, staff are furloughed. Uh, we're not serving, you know, meals, we don't need our housekeeping and Food service staff. I mean, there's definitely things that that make that not as dire as it sounds and we have built strong reserves over the years And we're really operating I would say on a I wouldn't say month-to-month basis. We're making decisions on a month-to-month basis and we are close to Needing to make a decision about what we're gonna be doing this fall It seems unlikely very unlikely that Mountain School will be able to operate this fall Even though we've officially only canceled programs to the end of August but we are trying to focus and shift that to, a, you know, to work with the school districts to see if there's a, a way to bring Mountain School, not virtually to the schools, but in person to have staff go to schools and to local parks to work on that. But um, we are, like every other organization that brings people together, are trying to figure out how to reopen safely and when, when makes best sense to do that.
2: How about donations? Are you seeing any uh, decline
3: or increase with that? Our spring campaign was up this year. We saw more new new donors than we'd ever had before, and we we met our goals. And uh, what I'm seeing right now is that people who can give more are giving more, and that will really it's going to be really interesting to see how that works throughout the rest of the year. Because I think the, the recession, the unemployment, all of those ca- things, the stock market, all of that, and it being an election year, are all going to really impact fundraising in, in ways that are probably not positive for us. But we really don't know. We have some really, we have really loyal, dedicated donors. But I, I expect to see uh, you know, people making smaller contributions in the past, uh, depending on their own you know, financial circumstances.
2: Now, I understand that your organization received a loan through the Payroll Protection Program. Can you say how much that loan was for and how far it's taking the organization so far?
3: Yes, we furloughed a bunch of our educational staff, frontline educators, in April. And then the PPP loan, which was around, I think, 350000 allowed us to bring all of them back or almost all of them back. At uh, for May and June, and so since April, we've all been re- working reduced hours. Where nobody's at the institute's working more than eighty percent time, and some are were down at fifty percent. But the PPP money made the plank that we were walking two months longer. So we've made decisions about July. We've we've been with that PPP money. We've been doing a number of things, and that you've already mentioned the mountain school at home and creating these family kits and other things. We've also used those funds and some other funds to do a lot of maintenance work that we would normally try to do in the off season at the learning center. So we've had our maintenance staff and some of our food service and housekeeping staff and others working on repainting some buildings inside and out. We just finished the dining hall. We're working on some of the other buildings now. So that's been a really great way. And that's, we've put that money to, to good use. We've brought back all of the full-time equivalents that we had furloughed so that loan will be forgiven, we assume. So that's been great. And now we are in a position where we are more actively tapping into our, the Institute's reserves, which we've built up over the last 34 years. And that's what they're there for. They've you know, they've helped us out in the past during government shutdowns and avalanche closure, closures closures the learning center and when we had to evacuate due to wildfires But it was really designed for, you know, short-term one or two week closures not for many months so we still have to really make a decision about Staffing as we look into the fall and what we will be able to do and that will all depend on what we will be hearing from the schools and and uh, our participants, and also what we're going to be hearing, what we believe is sort of the the right thing to do. Because even if things open up, if we don't feel like we can do it, even if things open up, we still have to believe we can manage the risk for our staff and participants in order to move forward.
2: I need to take a short break, but we will be back with more with Saul Weisberg, executive director and co-founder of the North Cascades Institute in Washington State.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via NationalParksTraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the ten most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org.
2: I'm talking with Saul Weisberg, who is executive director and co-founder of the North Cascades Institute let's tackle some other pressing topics. Diversity, racial equality, inclusion, and access. Your institute makes a point of recognizing and teaching about the ancestral homelands of tribes, bands, and First Nations, because your programs take place on these locations. Tell me about the ripple effect of embracing indigenous cultures among your
3: students. Thank you for asking that question. It's something that we've been grappling with for a long time trying to own our own responsibility and the role we play in that. We begin every institute program, um, every board meeting, every staff meeting with an acknowledgement of the people who lived here and still live here on these lands before us. That's not enough. It has to be part of a authentic relationship and it has to include not just um well it has to include everything i mean it 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 ties into everything one thing that we're doing we started a year ago and we're completing this year that's grant funded is a major revision of our mountain school curriculum and we are incorporating into that a, a number of things including next generation science standards and more social emotional and multicultural learning but we are also incorporating that washington state's k-12 tribal curriculum which is called since time immemorial and we're trying to tailor that curriculum specifically to the the learning center and the land we occupy now there and we just completed it for one of the videos we're doing with with uh, our partners city light we just completed an interview with the general manager of the upper skagit tribe talking about their tenure on this land And just trying to we're trying to do our best and we're also trying to learn what what that means and looks like
2: you touched on this a little bit previously um, but i want to ask you a little bit more about how your institute has worked over the years to make programs more accessible to kids and families with systemic obstacles they face in their communities and schools you mentioned scholarships you mentioned subsidized programs what are you looking at going forward? Are you trying to
3: um, increase some of these numbers? Our youth programs, I think are very diverse. Uh, probably approaching our, the, the percentages that we have in the state, if that's a, a metric that we would measure against. I'm not sure that's the best one, but I think we need to have some metrics and some goals there that really hold us accountable. Our family programs and the Skagit tours we do with City Light are also quite diverse. Our individual adult programs, seminars, much less so. I think there are so many levels to that question. A lot of people don't even know North Cascades National Park exists, especially in comparison to Mount Rainier and Olympic National Parks here in Washington. North Cascades is one of the least visited national parks and there have been a number of stories about that recently And I would say that people of color visit North Cascades much less than they visit other national parks here in Washington How do we address that? I think we have to Ask the communities What they want and need I don't think we can go in and say we've got this great gift We've got it all figured out I think funding helps with that. I think transportation helps with that. I think reaching into the community and trying to understand the barriers before we act is really important. When we first started mountain school uh, 30 years ago, we realized that a lot of uh, the Latinx girls were not attending. And so we went into the community and we realized that families were not comfortable with their kids, but particularly their girls, going on sleepovers away in tents in the national park. So there was a period of of just really working with the schools, with the families, translating materials into Spanish. And now that I don't believe that's an issue. I mean everyone comes. But we had to figure out why. We just couldn't, I mean, luckily somebody pointed out to us that there was this disparity. So we have to we have to ask questions and we have to be ready to hear some hard answers. And that, that's at every level. It's its in terms of who's coming. It's about what, what stops access to public lands. We know that race plays a big part in that. And we're not alone in trying to understand that. And uh, there's a lot we have to learn. Saul, you are an
2: ecologist, an author, a former park ranger, among other things. When you founded the Institute What were you hoping to achieve? And again, discounting the setback that we're experiencing right now, have your expectations been met overall?
3: Honestly, I didn't have any expectations. This was something that some friends and I had dreamed of, thought it'd be really fun, had worked in other, you know, at nature centers and and outdoor ed camps in different parts of the country. I remember writing a note, actually my mother My mother reminded me that I wrote a note to her back then in 1986 that said, oh, this might be a good gig for a couple of summers. And obviously it's been much more than that. In the early days, I remember talking around a campfire with folks and saying, our mission is to save the world. That wasn't our official mission, but it sounded like (laughs) a good thing to talk about. And somebody, one of the participants in a program in those early days once said, how about we just try to change a little part of it, the North Cascades, for the better, and that's probably a little more realistic. And our mission now is to inspire environmental stewardship through transformative learning experiences in nature. There are a lot of ways to do that. Uh, perhaps having a residential learning center is an incredible way because it allows people to. It allows. It's a window for some people. It's a, it's a comfortable, safe window. For people who are not ready to go backpacking or can't do this on their own or for so many reasons That's a really important tool, but it's just a tool. It's not the it's not the end of the line Uh, We take some we're, we're talking about taking more programs into schools right now because the kids can't come to us I think all of these things. I think the mission of inspiring environmental stewardship is critical protecting and preserving nature is critical and those are gonna, we're going to see those things coming together in new ways as we look forward.
2: Saul, I want to thank you very much for taking your time to speak with me today. I wish you and the North Cascades Institute the best of luck going forward from here.
3: Well, thanks. It's, um, you ask good questions, and it's great to be challenged, and it's helpful to, to know we have allies out there all over. Thank you.
0: Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at NCascades.org.
1: And now, a commentary. A concerning story arose this past week from Padre Island National Seashore on the Gulf Coast of Texas. For decades, biologists at the National Seashore have run a sea turtle science and recovery program. In short, this widely acclaimed and popular program has helped build the populations of the endangered Kemp's Ridley sea turtle by taking eggs from turtle nests, incubating them, and then releasing the hatchlings into the Gulf of Mexico. Today, more Kemp's Ridley sea turtles nest at Padre Island National Seashore than any other location in the United States, according to the National Park Service. And yet, despite the successes of this program, Park Service officials now want to reduce funding to the program and make programmatic changes that public employees for environmental responsibility equates with conservation malpractice. A 51-page review of the recovery program produced by the Park Service says the program has become too costly and shouldn't be working to boost populations of green and loggerhead sea turtles, two other endangered species that lay their eggs in nests on and near the National Seashore. And the report says the program also shouldn't run the incubation center. At the Center for Biological Diversity, Executive Director Kiernan Sucklin told the traveler that There would be no Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtles in the United States were it not for the Park Service's incredibly successful, incredibly popular reintroduction program. Dr. Donna Shaver, one of the world's foremost turtle experts who runs the recovery program at Padre Island, unfortunately can't discuss the 51-page report. The Park Service has gagged her. A Park Service official in Denver, at the Intermountain region of the Park Service that oversees Padre Island, says the agency's Only plan forward is to strengthen the program. Exactly how the program can be strengthened by cutting its funding by nearly a third, abandoning the successful incubation program, and stopping it from also working to save green and loggerhead sea turtles remains to be seen. One of the criticisms made in the report is that the Turtle Recovery Program's $2.2 million budget represents nearly a quarter of the National Seashore's entire annual budget to the detriment of other programs at the seashore. Using that point to justify slashing a program that not only is extremely popular with park visitors, but also is vital to the future of the Kemp's Ridley Turtle, is misguided. If the Park Service is concerned about other programs at the seashore, it should boost their funding, not cut that of a program as successful and important and valuable as a sea turtle science and recovery program. Not only does this program under Dr. Shaver boost the populations of endangered sea turtles, but research conducted by her team includes satellite tracking of Kemp's Ridleys, analyzing the effects of egg incubation temperatures on sex ratios of hatchlings, and studying the foraging ecology of juvenile green sea turtles. The research, as the Park Service notes, is part of global efforts to conserve sea turtles. What motivated the National Park Service to focus on the Sea Turtle Science and Recovery Program in an effort to reduce costs remains to be seen. But there are other glaring questions that have been unanswered so far. Why are wildlife biologists inside and outside of Padre Island being gagged from discussing this report? Why wasn't Dr. Shaver allowed to review the report? If funding really was the issue... Past superintendents at Padre Island National Seashore could have addressed any perceived inequities, yet they didn't. Not to be overlooked, either, is that no other park does this kind of turtle farming while also contributing to science and conservation biology. While there might need to be some adjustments to be made, let's hope this report doesn't force Dr. Shaver out and see the Sea Turtle Science and Recovery Program hollowed out. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. That's our show for this week. In the weeks ahead, we'll be asking for your support. National Parks Traveler depends greatly on its listeners and readers to enable us to bring you the latest news about the parks and help you make the most out of your national park vacation. Please make a tax-deductible donation today. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org on the right side of the green menu bar. Too many news organizations are falling by the wayside these days due to changing patterns in advertising and the belief that if it's on the internet, it should be free. We certainly hope to keep our articles free to all comers, but economic times are very tight and ensuring the future of Traveler would be greatly enhanced with your help. Thanks in advance. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck.
0: Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at
3: nationalparkstraveler.org.